Hey there, I'm Ryan Johnson, and welcome to episode eight. Hold your breath. I can't feel like I shouldn't talk over this. This is always this. This I've probably watched the movie. I don't know how many times, but I'll tell you something. Every time I sit down to watch it, it never gets old. It's that Lucasfilm long time ago, the pause, and then that opening fanfare never gets old. Points is Jason and it's Gabe. It's Soggy Year, The Last Jedi. Jedi. I heard it's okay. So people talk about it every once in a while. It comes up in conversation every so often. Yeah. It's crazy thinking, though, that we're coming up on it being three years old. And I feel like it's still the most discussed Star Wars movie of this new era. Like, period. Like, every single day, people are still admiring, analyzing picking apart sometimes certain certain areas complaining <laughs> people are still mad about it you know it's just the last jedi is never going away i think that's the the takeaway from this it's funny how it almost has become the new phantom menace in the fact that we still didn't we still get an article this year about how the phantom menace like ruined the 90s or something like that <laughs> so we're going to till the end of time we're going to get last jedi is terrible Stories and articles until, yeah, until we're all old and gray because it's just that kind of movie that you either love it or you hate it. But in either camp, you just can't stop talking about it. It's the Star Wars movie that either made you more of a fan 
or ruined everything for you. Like Phantom Menace. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's another one of those. <laughs> yeah, those just things that that happen that it either radicalizes you to the cause or you're just like, I'm out of this. I need a new hobby. <laughs> this has gone. You've gone too far. I, I can't keep up with you anymore. Yeah, and we're down. We're we're off the deep end because we we had the Phantom Menace and Last Jedi radicalized us. So I don't even know where we're at anymore. <laughs> we're we've transcended time and space, and we're floating on balls of light through the galaxy. <laughs> I kind of can't believe that we're coming on three years of the Last Jedi, and you know we always make the the comparison with the Star Wars movies that they're like you know your new children. Or like a pet or something you bring home and you gotta you have that period of time of getting used to it and getting comfortable and Last Jedi for me, like three years later, I feel like I love it more and more as the years go by and kind of as I see how it fits into the bigger puzzle of all the Star Wars, not even the Skywalker saga, not even those nine movies, like of everything, of just kind of what that movie represents, what it was when it came out, what it still is, the fact that, as we're going to get into here, the fact that we're still discovering new things about it, and there's still so much to analyze about that movie, and it never stops being fascinating. I mean, that's all we can ask for out of a Star Wars movie. Well, and it's it's interesting thinking back that before Disney, we would now just be getting episode nine. We would just be getting Rise of Skywalker. And we would have had three years of nothing but Last Jedi to think about and talk about. So it, it does really highlight just how different it is now that we're on one hand so lucky to get so much new Star Wars stuff and great Star Wars stuff so quickly but it also does give you less time to just yeah really just soak in a movie like last jedi and and really get to just spend three years kind of finding all its secrets and feeling like you're you're now we're ready for what comes next as opposed to you know which was one of the things with solo like we were literally so still getting used to last jedi when all of a sudden we had to go see solo and Solo was a very different movie from The Last Jedi. And it was it was that gear shift from The Last Jedi to Solo. Like now going back and like watching Solo again, it's like, oh, this movie's really great. But, you know, at the time we were still in that Last Jedi gear and we weren't ready to shift into Solo world. But Well, yeah, so it's almost like three years later now is now like the sweet spot. Like now... Last Jedi's had time to breathe, <laughs> and we've had time to breathe, and we're really enjoying breathing in the wonderful aroma of The Last Jedi <laughs> still after all these years. One, one thing I love with The Last Jedi is it's so clear that it brought in even more fans, or fans that came on during The Force Awakens. It, yeah, like you said, it radicalized a whole group, like the most passionate, the most fascinating, the most interesting perspectives on Star Wars nowadays are all kind of because of fans that came in and just went sideways for The Last Jedi. And it's kind of awesome that now that movie for, for so many fans is the pinnacle. And for everything that comes out, it's like, is it Last Jedi level? 
you know, I feel like for us for a while, it was like Return of the Jedi or something. And then, it was, you know, Phantom Menace, like we said, but, but I love that. I love seeing that now with the, the, with the new generation of fans. Yeah. And I think that's maybe something that was hard to appreciate so close to it. Just how much you're right that, you know, there were people who loved the force awakens, but people that loved the last Jedi, like love it to the next level and it did bring in people who might not even like any of the other Star Wars movies. They just like Last Jedi. Like, it was that good, and it was that different enough from everything that had come before it that it could bring in all new fans on its own. And that's kind of, it's kind of a bar that's been set that we'll see if Disney can go over that bar and, and bring in more people that maybe don't like all the other stuff as much. And maybe Mandalorian's doing that a little bit, but not in the same way The Last Jedi did. And yeah, I'm really curious to see as we go forward and more and more stuff comes out that if they'll be able to do that again of of have something that it feels so Star Wars, but feels Star Wars in a way that it really can bring in a whole new audience. It's a movie that challenged us at the time, continues to challenge us. Never stops being entertaining, never gets boring, never gets old, at least for us. And yeah, I mean, as time goes by, I'm just like, I really love this movie. Like in my my bizarre rating of the, the movies, it, it keeps like trickling up higher and higher, like just keeps getting higher. And it's, you know, my my list of favorite Star Wars movies used to be like, this is set in stone. It's never moving, you know, but now, I don't know. Last Jedi is kind of it's kind of fluid, you know? Yeah. Well, it's true. It's like when they're going to make sequels, it's like, okay, cool. It'll be fun to get new Star Wars stuff, but I can't see myself, you know, I'm going to enjoy these new movies, but I don't see how I'm going to enjoy them more than my old favorites. And now all of a sudden, one of these new movies is right up there with the, the, the favoritest of the old favorites. Like, I never would have imagined that we would have gotten a new Star Wars movie that would have just got me that much. To where, and especially because it wasn't. If I would have before it came out, you asked me like, "Well, what do you want in a new Star Wars movie?" It might not have been what I would have described, but it's the whole thing of you don't know what you want necessarily, and getting what you want isn't necessarily what you need. And it was just, it was the Star Wars movie, I guess, that I needed and didn't know it. So after all that, you might be saying, well, what else could possibly be said about The Last Jedi? And there's, you know, that's a that's a fair question to ask because a lot has been written. A lot has been said about this movie, like endlessly. But, you know, actually, there's a lot. There's a lot that is still yet to discover. And there's still just a lot about that movie that 
that is kind of worth repeating because the movie said and still says some really, really interesting things. I mean, not just about like Star Wars, but just about, I don't know, movies and mythology and storytelling and just, you know, everything. It's just a fascinating, fascinating piece of work. The commentary, which we're going to, this is the focus of this episode. It was on the DVD, the Blu-ray and everything that, Blu-ray came out just like, what, a month before Solo came out? And there was the director and the Jedi, and we talked about that. And we had a whole episode about that, and people talked about that. But then it's like not many people really talked about this Ryan Johnson commentary, which is a shame because it's fascinating. And he breaks the whole movie down, and he does it in that very distinct Ryan Johnson style where he goes from super in-depth analytical intelligent discussion of scenes and then the next thing you know he's like getting real goofy and talking about the young ones and giggling (laughs) and getting real silly and making like weird jokes and just laughing to himself which in a way though if you think about it though is also very star wars that extreme tonal shift of real deep joseph campbellian hero's journey and then yeah a goofy alien with subtitles well, and the, and the commentary, I think, in this case is extra special, too, because it is currently the last director's commentary that we've gotten and really only one of two for all the Disney Star Wars films that have come out. I mean, at least with Mandalorian, we've gotten the gallery, which gives us a little bit of the insight into the creative process of some of the directors. But, you know, one of the highlights of all previous to to the Disney stuff, the original six movies was a director's commentary track, potentially a second commentary track with the effects people. Like it was just one of the things that was so great about going back and revisiting those movies was just hearing George Lucas talk about the movies. And with force awakens, we kind of, I mean, we technically got one, but it was kind of weird. It came in a second version of the movie and with all the, I guess, issues with Rogue One and Solo. We just, we didn't get in a commentary track and it was just so nice to be back to having that with Last Jedi and the fact that Ryan is just so thoughtful with what his decisions were for the movie. It makes it such a joy to listen to and it does, I think you can not like this movie and that's totally valid, but to not think it wasn't well made, I think is not a valid argument because just listening to this, like you might not agree with Ryan's decisions, but he put a lot of thought into every second of this movie. And it's a Ryan Johnson movie through and through, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And if you didn't know it's on Disney plus it's at the very, very end. If you go on the last Jedi and if you go on the extras, it's one of the last things on there and yeah, you can, you can watch it. On Disney Plus, the the score only version is as of recording this. <laughs> yeah. The score only version is back on there. Quickly go listen to it while you can before it disappears again. Because that that's the other. I mean, I guess that's not even the other. That is the only of all the films to have the score only version. Last Jedi is the only one, and it's really a treat to watch the movie that way. And I hope and hope. I think we've said this a million times that someday we get that for all the movies. But yeah, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through Ryan's commentary for the movie. We're going to pick some of 
our personal favorite, most interesting bits from that fascinating commentary. And yeah, share some of the highlights. And there's there's a lot to go over. Like as Ryan goes through the his creative process and breaks it all down. It's like Ryan explains it all. And we, you know, this could be like a four-hour episode where we had we had a long list and we had to really whittle it down to just the essentials because there's so much good stuff in this commentary, almost kind of like the George Lucas commentaries, like for the prequels and for the original trilogy. Like there's just endless or the, the Kirshner commentary for Empire Strikes Back or on, on his tippy toes. You know, it's definitely as much as it's a Star Wars classic film. It is a Star Wars classic director's commentary. Yeah, so where do we begin with the Ryan Johnson commentary? What would you what what's the first little interesting nugget in there? Well, right from the beginning, because it's the beginning of the movie, he kind of starts to talk about his thought process of deciding to start the film with a goofy joke, which if you're going to do something controversial in your movie why not do it right away and get everybody ready for it so uh we kind of start the movie here with a uh with a joke and this was i i I held on to this this was something where i um i felt like first of all i i knew that with all kind of the heaviness of it being the middle chapter and i knew people were going to come in the expectations of all the grand opera of it. And I really wanted this movie to be fun. I love the tone that um, JJ and that, you know, Michael and, and Larry set with The Force Awakens and the tone of the original films as a spirit of fun to it. I, I felt like we had to, at the very beginning, kind of break the ice and say, we're going to have fun here. We're going to try some fun stuff and it's, it, it's going to be okay to laugh with this movie. Um, so we kind of started with a little Monty Python sketch. I love this because he's talking about how he recorded this commentary before the movie was released. And he's kind of just like, hey, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what people are going to think of this. But the tone in the beginning was definitely something that divided audiences in the first five minutes of the movie. But I love him just being like, I wanted to break the ice because the movie does, and t- he admits it gets really serious as it goes on. And he wanted to put just some lightness in the beginning. It's like I said, his his commentary and almost like the way he is, like this extremely deep, thoughtful, analytical person, and then extremely goofy and like Monty Python-esque jokes, like just back to back. It's like we've said all along, all through these last three years with The Last Jedi, it's like if any director can match the weirdness of the tone of George Lucas, it's Ryan Johnson. Yeah. He as a person seems to be in the, in the George Lucas realm of that mixture of yeah, deep thoughts and, and dumb jokes kind of thing that is just when done right is just the perfect, the perfect star Wars blend. Cause yeah. Then right after that, he's following it up with the Hawks uh, on the bridge and I love him talking about how Hux was kind of like a, this dark, evil character. And he's just like, I, I thought Hux was kind of funny. Donald Gleason, who we, we play with in this film, again, in a slightly more comic way than in The Force, <laughs> in the Force Awakens. Uh, I found the character of Hux, um, I don't know, I immediately 
found him very funny. <laughs> I saw a lot of humor potential in him. And, uh, you know, I knew that Kylo was going to be front and center as kind of the heavy in this movie. We didn't need another heavy between Kylo and Snoke. And so uh, the notion of Hux kind of being this foil that could add a slightly different flavor to everything, I thought um, I thought could be more useful. Yeah, and then he talked, it's the first Young Ones reference of the commentary where he's talking about how he cast Adrian Edmondson, who we all know and love, is playing Vivian from The Young Ones, cast him as a First Order officer, and mix in some Young Ones in your Star Wars. And the fact that here he is now, you know, granted it's his first, you know, big production, but he's a, you know, established director. He's directing this big picture and he's talking about how he was just nervous being on set with Adrian Edmondson because he was such a fan of him from Young Ones. Like, it's just, it's, it's Ryan Johnson. Adrian Edmondson right here is in the movie because I am a huge, huge fan of AIDS. Uh, he... Did, he was in The Young Ones, and he did a series called Bottom, which was a, I was a huge fan of. And um, every day that he was on set, I was just trying to play it cool and not start quoting The Young Ones to him. Well, next he starts talking about something near and dear to us is just how much he loved the Kennedy stuff and how much a fan he was of the actor Mark Lewis Jones and kind of going into how as they were editing the film, they just were so in love with that character that they made sure when they did pick up shots that they filmed a death scene for him because they felt he deserved a distinguished death because they loved that character so much. No secrets. Our, our affection for Captain Kennedy and listeners, uh, Ricardo and Marissa, when they met Ryan Johnson at a screening, I think they were wearing Blast Point shirts, and they told him they did a whole episode about Kennedy to Ryan Johnson's face. And when I heard about that, it brought warm feelings to my heart. Yeah, I still think about that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Ryan Johnson, have you listened to the Kennedy Day episode? That is the question. <laughs> uh, this actor is Mark Lewis Jones, who plays Kennedy. And God, he's, I love him. He's just got such a powerful uh, fire on the base. Uh, our Matt Wood, who is uh, our, our kind of sound supervisor, um, was convinced that that line, Fire on the Bass, was going to start being used by uh, EDM DJs. And he might be right. So after that, though, things get a little bit more serious where we're talking about Luke on the island. Ryan is kind of explaining the puzzle, the, the problem he kind of had, not really a problem, but the mystery to solve of why is Luke on the island? I know it was, it was kind of in The Last Jedi where, you know, Han says he went off looking for the, the first Jedi temple. It's wild to go back to that post-Force Awakens era. Like our whole first year of the podcast, we were like, why is Luke? What is he doing? What's going on? And Ryan just breaks it down in the commentary just brilliantly. The first thing I had to do when I was writing the script was figure out why is Luke on this island. And, uh, you know, because we have the enigmatic kind of shot at the end of The Force Awakens. We see his face. We wonder what's going on here. And, uh, you know, I, 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 so he knows his friends are fighting this good fight. He knows there's peril out there in the galaxy. And he's exiled himself way out here and taken himself out of it. Um and so I had to figure out why. And I knew because it's Luke Skywalker, who I grew up with as a hero, I knew the answer couldn't be cowardice. 
so he, I knew it had the answer had to be something active. He couldn't just be hiding, and I knew it had to be something positive. He thinks he's doing the right thing, and that kind of led to uh, hey porgs. Uh, that led to um, sorry, it's tough to keep your train of thought on a serious topic while there are porgs on the screen. I apologize. Uh, that led to the notion that he's he's come to the conclusion from all the given evidence that uh, the Jedi are, are not helping and they're just perpetuating this kind of cycle and that they need to go away so that the light can rise from a more worthy source. And so suddenly then that turned his exile from something where he's hiding and avoiding responsibility to him kind of taking the weight of the world on his shoulders and bearing the responsibility you know, bearing this huge burden of knowing his friends are suffering. And because he thinks it's the bigger, it's a better, bigger thing for the galaxy. He's, uh, he's choosing to not engage with it. He's asking himself the right questions of why is Luke on the Island? And it, it has to make sense. He's not a coward. He's not there passively. Like he had, there had to be a reason that he would go to this Island and cut himself off from what's happening in the world and from his friends. And it wasn't just like, Oh, it'd be funny if he was on the Island kind of thing. Like it was, he put a lot of thought into this and and it's really interesting. And with hindsight now to hearing him talk about how he's solving this problem, but it wasn't necessarily a problem that, or a, a mystery that he wanted to solve. Like that was where the story went. And now, you know, looking back to the, the art books of, a lot of the early drafts, even before JJ had Luke kind of exiled in the, in the, in the second movie, you know, hearing him talk about it, it just seems like he cut himself off because in Luke's mind, he believed that was the best thing that he could do. And it's like with, with so much with the Luke stuff in the last Jedi, I mean, it was one of the things that, Ryan Johnson kind of got the most flack for after the movie came out with it. The more we learn about the sequel trilogy, now that we're getting farther and farther away from it between the, the art books, Phil Sostek's art books or Paul Duncan's prequel archive book that is just about to come out here in the States. You know, a lot of these things he inherited from the George Lucas versions of the sequel trilogy. I mean, yeah, the, art book for The Last Jedi, there's all that very, very early George Lucas and Ian McKaig just sketching out, you know, and Doug Chang stuff of Luke on an island. Well, and it really is, you know, if you put yourself in his place of, of figuring this out, like it is a really tough question of Luke, here's Luke, the hero of the previous films, what would cause him to turn his back on his friends, his family, the galaxy that he kind of spent the greater part of his life defending? Like what is going to cause the hero to cut himself off? And by solving that problem, that kind of gave him the framework to kind of build the rest of the movie around. It's like the question they asked all through the making of that you heard over and over again with the making of the the Force Awakens, where it's like, who is Luke Skywalker? And they always talk about that was their driving question going into exploring for Force Awakens, and that what got JJ to sign on and all that stuff. But it's like that question really didn't get answered until the Last Jedi. 
They might have asked JJ the question, but Ryan inherited the answer. Well, and the, the key things like in the trailer for that question and the thing that kind of got everybody going was the, the famous, you know, it's time for the Jedi to end. And Ryan has some interesting things to say about that in, in the commentary, too. And this line, actually, it's time for the Jedi to end. It's funny. Like, originally, my written line here was something much more kind of convoluted. Like, you know, I forget what it was, but it was not as concise as that. It was actually the, the, the when we cut the trailer, the, uh, the trailer guys actually kind of did a condensed version of it that just said it's time for the Jedi to end. And so I went, I took that and I went back and <laughs> I readjusted. I'm like, that's ah, so much better than the line I originally wrote. I went back and readjusted it so that it was, it was just that and it worked so much better. Well, it's neat because this kind of information I think ties in with a lot of what you hear through this commentary is that as much as you, you know, read stories or see interviews just of how organized and focused he is on when he's writing a script, that he's not afraid to make changes based on either things he discovers through filming or or interacting with with the other cast and crew members and in this case just hearing what the marketing trailer team did to edit it for time for a trailer and realizing oh that is way more to the point and efficient and then this kind of wordy original version that he had in his script and just it's it's nice to see that you know he's not so much a slave to what he's written and I, maybe that's why you know when you hear stories of people just how much they enjoy working with him because not every director's that open to self-evaluation being able to just oh yeah that's a much better idea i'm going to i'm going to go with that well and another interesting thing about the way he films and something that's kind of very different than what we've gotten in a lot of other Star Wars movies is it's a very telling moment where Leia's on the Radis and it's, you all know the scene where she's sitting there with her space water bottle. And I love this part in the commentary where he talks about the importance of slowing it down a little bit and giving Leia this all-important kind of moment. You know, Star Wars is all faster, more intense. But kind of in The Last Jedi, taking the time to slow it down a little bit, it goes a long way. And it, it reminds me of, like, you know, in Revenge of the Sith with Anakin and Padme looking out the windows. And just even that moment back in 2005 was, like, kind of shocking because that was a moment where Star Wars did slow down a little bit. I love that moment with Carrie. I was really great memory of just sitting with her and talking through what was going through her head in that moment. Um, felt important to just give a moment of quiet for Leia. Uh, and, you know, so much of Leia's thing in this movie, I, I wanted to, I felt like here's a character who has basically experienced just loss after loss after loss throughout the course of these movies. I thought it would be nice to acknowledge that and to actually have give her some moments where you can feel the weight of the world and see her actually kind of break by the end of this. I, th I thought, I thought, you know, the, the character I, I could be a really powerful thing and something that, um, you know, to see her actually bearing that weight. 
seemed important and Carrie really tapped into it. Yeah, because if you go back to the original three movies, yeah, you know, for all the hardship Leia goes through over the course of those movies that, yeah, she never gets a moment to breathe. And the closest thing is maybe her and Luke talking on the on the balcony in, in the Ewok village, but really that's all about Luke and she's just listening to him. So, you know, it takes us until this movie to get Leia that moment to just to see her reflecting on everything she's been through as a character through these previous movies. When keeping on the Leia thing too, I mean, it's still something people talk about all the time, but the, the Leia in space part, his explanation of that now infamous scene, it's just really nice to hear him just actually talk about it and just kind of, it's before the movie came out. Like we said, there's hasn't been any reaction to it. And, just hearing his honest feelings about that scene is just really nice to hear. So this scene was, um, you know, I, I, I felt like it was, this was something that Kathy Kennedy would, would bring up, and the notion that Leia is a Skywalker as well, and she's got that same heritage. And there's the line in, you know, Jedi where uh, Luke says someday, you know, you've got these powers too. And we never see him manifest. And the notion that in a moment like this, when... Um, the moment like this when it seems like all is lost and she just realizes, realize just, you know, she's not done yet. And almost through instinct, almost like you hear about parents when their kids are caught under cars, being able to get Hulk strength and lift them up. That, that's kind of what I wanted this moment to be with her using the force kind of for the first time in these movies to pull herself back and to uh, say, oh, no, I'm I'm we're not done. I mean, this is not ending here. Yeah, and it's neat to hear, too, just behind the scenes, how much Kathleen Kennedy was a fan of kind of leaning into Leia's latent force powers and how, you know, Luke tells her she has that power and Yoda says there is another. Like, that's kind of the beginning of that whole discussion that ultimately led to her being the mentor character in rise of skywalker and that kind of all coming from kathleen kennedy and her discussions with the with ryan johnson and jj and it sounds like the based on the rise of skywalker art book there's a whole little page on that right there of, of just a little story meeting they had kind of fleshing out that idea yeah again it's it's totally worth repeating may 21st 2014 right after the start of principal principal photography for The Force Awakens. There's what, it's Pablo, Dave Filoni, John Knoll, Kiri Hart. And what Dave Filoni's quote is, we should shift it so Leia is the Obi-Wan of this entire trilogy. I don't even think that it hurts. She's not primarily that mentor figure in Seven because, like John had been saying, the audience's expectation is on Luke. So when it proves not to be true, it's way more powerful. It's dangerous because it makes it so about the women of Star Wars. Something to me says that's right. So, yeah, that was always the plan. Well, and you can even say in The Last Jedi, and you can see kind of Ryan carrying through that, where other than getting hints at these Force abilities, she might not be the Obi-Wan figure to Rey, but she is the Obi-Wan figure to Poe in this movie and she's the mentor and she's teaching 
Poe how to be a leader. So the undertone of that is still kind of building beneath the surface in The Last Jedi of her being the ultimate mentor. And moving on to, like we were saying, for as much as like you flip through the art of Last Jedi book and I think we said when we did our episode about that book, it's not so much like the other art of books where there's like all these different concepts for them kind of figuring out what the look of everything is. It's kind of more just these gorgeous paintings and drawings of what you actually see in the film because it's all like Ryan had the writer and director of the last Jedi and he had the whole movie in his head and what, what, what he wanted to look like. But also you learn in this commentary that, two major characters in the movie, Holdo and Rose, were very much influenced by Laura Dern and Kelly Marie Tran's performances versus what was in the the script. And yeah, Ryan explains that just in, again, the most perfect, eloquent way. The character of Holdo was interesting. It, it developed quite a bit in the editing. We went back and did a couple pickup, pickup shots actually also. Um, even with this speech, um, to kind of tweak the performance a little. Originally, she was a much more kind of like hippy-dippy sort of, um, I don't know, I had this idea that she would be just the opposite of what you'd expect from kind of a military leader stepping up there. And there's, that's still the case with her. She still has a very, you know, feminine energy, and she's got, um, and not she doesn't have the traditional kind of gruff male energy that you associate, that you've, come to associate with, uh, you know, with military leadership. And so um, the fact that she's leading in a different mode and that, you know, how people would react to that, that was something that was very interesting to me. But our initial take on it that Laura and I kind of did, it was was too much and she was a little too, uh, you know, she's a little too spacey. And um, so we went back and kind of got a slightly stronger take but i think it still has that um that initial energy we were going for with it well and it's it's fun hearing him talk about it too just how almost more stylized the characters were in his mind with holdo being more of like a hippie and rose being what does he say she was like eeyore and she's just kind of a grump and how much you can kind of see that type of character as the basis, but just how that type of character was kind of diffused through the actress and that Kelly Marie's real life personality was kind of fused with Eeyore to become what we love about Rose and the same with Holdo. It was that idea of kind of a different kind of, of general mixed in with just Laura Dern's natural personality and him being able to take advantage of that and end up with something that's you know better than what was on the page, which is really the, you know, the secret to making a, a good movie and a movie that people are drawn to. When I love him talking, when he's talking about Holdo, I love him talking about her feminine energy. And it, it reminds me of something I remember reading about uh, Sigourney Weaver talking about uh, the problems with uh, alien three screenplays that she would get that nobody, no like, dude writing an alien screenplay could ever get Ripley right. I remember her saying that they all wrote Ripley like a basketball coach or like a drill sergeant, just like giving orders and no one could figure out kind of Ripley. And I think Ryan really gets it. And he, 
was able to write characters like Holdo and like Rose, you know, and you can even say that too about Knives Out. Yeah, and well, and it makes sense because the way it seems like if you're not a woman to write a good woman character is to involve the women who are performing that character to help bring that feminine energy to life. And it's not him dictating how the character could be because he knows best how this character is. It's, it's a collaboration between the idea of the character that he has with the real world experience of the, of the actors that he's working with. Kelly Marie Tran as Rose. Um, Kelly, we, we went through a really exhaustive, one of these horrible, uh, exhaustive, uh, um, casting processes and i say horrible not for us we got to i got to meet just a ton of hugely talented actors but it's always painful when you meet a ton of hugely talented actors and end up only casting one you just want to cast all of them but um kelly ended up being i mean when i met her and got to know her she just she is rose she has just beautiful bright spirit and it ended up informing the character um in more ways than one uh you know, originally Rose was kind of, I, I had thought of her more as like a grumpy sort of Eeyore type. And once we got Kelly in the part and, and her spirit just started to infect it. And even this thing where she's like a fan of Finn's, this was a fairly late rewrite. I, this is one of the few scenes I rewrote during production. And I rewrote it. Um, originally, she was much more suspicious of Finn. And I rewrote it to more reflect Kelly's spirit and her personality. I was like, oh, no, she'd be excited and a fan. And then this genuine disappointment when she realizes this this hero of her is not who she thought. Um, a much more open-hearted kind of character that, um, you know, is very, very much a reflection of Kelly. So moving on, there's so much we could talk about, but we've got to move on. The next big one, the Force Connections, which I love when Ryan Johnson starts talking about it. He's like, so these Force Connections. <laughs> so these Force Connections... When I was writing the script, uh, I, I knew that I needed Kylo and Ray. I wanted to form, to delve more into that relationship. I didn't see a way to do it physically. I didn't see how I could get them together without having some contrived thing where, like, she's being held hostage and then she can't be, you know, or he's on the island and then there has to be a physical confrontation. So I just wanted to make them talk. So I thought thought of the idea of this, okay, what if a new kind of connection opens between them? And then we had to figure out what it would look like. And um, there were all these visual ideas for, okay, what could this connection look like? And I just kept thinking, you know, I, I want it to just be intimate. I don't want any kind of, you know, um, swirling magical kind of thing. I don't want it to be about the effect of how they're looking at each other. I want it to be painfully intimate, just like you're sitting across from someone and talking. And so that's why I, I, I thought, huh, can we get away with just, just using um, film grammar, just using the notion that when you cut back and forth between shots like this, we're trained to think that these two people are in the same space talking to each other. And Especially if we, uh, once we kind of got in the mixing stage, and again, working with Ryan Kleiss, came up with this pretty extreme notion of dropping all the sound out except for their voices to isolate them, can we get away with this? And um, we didn't really know while we were shooting it. It wasn't until we got in the edit room that we were like, I think this is going to work. <laughs> well, and it's, it's extra great because it's one of those things that comes from a very 
simple problem or question. Like he wanted Ray and Kylo to interact and, and be able to talk intimately. Why don't they just talk to each other through the force? And is it really, can it really be that simple? And the answer was yes. The more simpler they made it, the more it worked. And it is one of those, I mean, thinking back to three years ago, like that was such a huge surprise and something I never would have imagined would be in a Star Wars movie. But it's now one of the, you know, just signature parts of this movie and kind of was carried over into Rise of Skywalker. Like it's a, it was a big deal. Well, and it's, it's like everything. There's just something so Star Wars about it where the simple answer is the smartest answer. And Star Wars is never flashy or Star Wars at least shouldn't be flashy. The good Star Wars is not flashy. Good Star Wars is, is that it's a simple story with simple characters, but it's so much more than that. And that, you know, it's that, that very delicate balance and the, the whole force connection, the whole concept of it and the way it was executed is just that personified kind of. Well, and it's, it kind of ties into the, to the, the magic of star Wars is just the magic of film and like, you know, film history kind of, is the DNA of the future of Star Wars and the ultimate simple solution it was to just use the logic and rules of film. If you look at one person in one location and then you cut to the opposite angle of the person they're talking to, like you would if they're in the same location, but they just happen to be in different locations, people just accepted it. And it was just something that was happening. And I don't feel like with all the, you know, the arguing and discussing and just talk of Last Jedi, I don't feel like anyone really ever had a problem with the Force connection thing. Like, it just worked for people. Like, and it's potentially one of the kind of craziest things in the movie, but it just, it worked so well. Well, our next big thing is the first Force lesson on the rock. And I love kind of Ryan breaking this scene down, talking about the way he wanted the Force to be depicted in this movie. I felt like it was important if we were going to have a couple of these kind of, um, you know, topsy-turvy lessons where Luke is trying to give her, teach her why <laughs> not to be a Jedi, but why the Jedi need to end. The notion of approaching a Force lesson, what is the Force? And the notion of, um, you know, especially for, for kids who are watching this, of kind of explaining that what, what, you know, what Mark says in this, the Force is not a superpower, it's not like, you know, uh, it's not just about making things float. It's not like a Iron Man type, you know, superpower that you get. It's, or Iron Man doesn't have superpowers, I know. I know, I know, I know. Iron Man's suit does everything. But um, it's not like a, you know, Superman thing. And the notion of trying to explain sort of uh, more in a, in a gentler kind of more spiritual way do a version of an explanation of the force, um, do a little bit of a reset on it. I thought was, uh, could be something that would be really good. Well, it's great to hear him too. just talk about it being for the kids. And there might be kids who are, who are new to star Wars and they need this lesson. And it's, it's as much for Ray as it is for the audience. And it was nice to get even for, you know, 
fans who've been around a while to kind of get your refresher course in what is the force and and done in such a interesting way just the way it was filmed i mean then our next big thing another thing that set the world on fire back in 2017 flashbacks (laughs) and something in 2000 in 2020 that there are still people who are confused about what happened in these. Well, I love that now, like every other episode of Mandalorian, there's a flashback, you know, I think in, in the Marshall, there was like 20 of them or something. And now we're just, you know, flashbacks are just part of star Wars. Totally fine. It's just something that we do. But this is our only time where we got the, the flashback from different points of view. The, the, the Rashomon kind of inspired thing going on. You know, listening to the commentary, something I didn't realize, you know, after seeing the movie Ben Tell This Too, was as much as these feel like they're central to the whole story of just the idea of Luke and Kylo remembering this moment differently and how much it affected them was something that was added later in the in the making of the movie. Like, I don't even think that idea was even in the original script. It was something they came up with as they were filming it. It's just another one of those things when you, you know, you watch a movie and you feel like, Oh my God, this, you know, this is, how did they come up with this This is perfect. And then you realize that it was like, Oh yeah. They just thought of that at kind of almost at the last minute. (laughs) Like, Oh, it's just, it's just so neat to see how much, you know, movies change over time as the viewer. You don't know what was there from the beginning and what was a, a last minute decision. So I knew uh, I knew I wanted to do a flashback. There are never never flashbacks in Star Wars movies, so I knew that we were um, kind of breaking from the norm here. It was rarely flashbacks, I should say. But uh, uh, I knew I wanted to go back and see um, Kylo and 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 Ben when they were, I'm sorry, Kylo and and uh, Mark when they were first training, and. Um, I also, though, I mean, you know, so I went back and forth, like, ah, do we show a full training montage? Do we show a whole scene where we see kind of his corruption? Do we see, you know, how much of this do we want to actually watch? And um, I kind of landed on, well, you know, I feel like it would be too much of a tangent to do a full, especially given the breadth of the movie that we're trying to accomplish. It would be too much to go back and see all of this. So... Let's go back to just the moment that really matters specifically to Luke's character, which is the moment of his failure. Um, because ultimately, you know, this whole construction that Luke has in his head about the good of the universe and everything is 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 kind of a, uh, you know, it all comes down to this personal feeling of, you know, he's, he's, he's failed this kid because of his hubris. And so, um, so that moment and the notion then of, uh, that came kind of late in the writing process of doing this Rashomon style uh, three versions of it where you see a slightly different version each time um, seemed like it had promise and I think Mark's performance and the voiceover in that whole scene combined with his performance on screen when he's considering whether or not to you know when he's looking down at, at Kylo that's coming up later um, and it's a really beautiful piece of work our next thing that's worth talking about I think it had to have been something that was there from the beginning. It's the second Young Ones reference of the commentary. Uh, I know we've talked about it before, but we're talking about it again because we love it that much. At the end of the Father Year Chase, there's the deepest Young Ones reference. And I love 
how Ryan Johnson's just like, eh, this, this is the deepest young, young ones reference ever. But he doesn't exactly tell you what it is. He, he wants you to go do the research. Right. He tells you there's a young ones reference, but he gives you no clue as to what it is. And this is uh, the most obscure young ones reference ever put into a Star Wars movie. But when you figure out what it is, it's pretty much as obvious as it could be. <laughs> the final episode of Young Ones, yeah, when they're in a bus and they go over a cliff and they see a billboard of Cliff Richard and they yell Cliff before they go over the cliff. This is it! It's really happening! Who needs qualifications? Who cares about Thatcher and unemployment? Oh. We can do just exactly whatever we want to do! And do you know why? Because we're Young Ones! Bachelor boys! Crazy, mad, wild-eyed, big-bottomed anarchists! <laughs> Look out! Cliff! So, bless you, Ryan Johnson. So the next big moment is, according to Ryan, actually one of the first big moments he had when he started writing this movie was spending a few days, what, was he walking on the beach with production designer Rick Carter just talking about how Star Wars makes him feel. One of the first things I did uh, when I got the job initially, um, I had uh, I met with a couple of people. I had lunch with Larry Kasdan, which was really important uh, for me. And uh, obviously I sat down with J.J., um, talked to Michael Arndt. I also went out to... Uh, Malibu, and I spent a couple of weeks hanging out with Rick Carter. And Rick Carter is um, kind of an unseen Yoda behind this kind of sequel trilogy. He worked on Force Awakens. He's a production designer who um, Kathy Kennedy has a long history with, and he's a really amazing guy. And Rick and I just spent a couple of weeks. I would go down there, you know, few times a week and we would walk down the beach and just have these long talks and it was one of the very first things I did when I first got the gig and if you know Rick you know that when you're talking with him about story you aren't talking about you aren't talking about action scenes you're not talking about set pieces you're not talking about toys you're talking about what matters to you in the story and you're talking about you know, the mythic stuff behind it all and images that mean matter to you and what it means to you, how it relates to your experience and um, really digging into stuff that's very personal. And for that to be the first real conversation I had with anybody about the movie, to start off on that foot of we're going to dig in and, and figure out what matters to you in this and, and uh to have the permission to start there, I guess. Here's, here's our flashback. Celebration, Anaheim, 2015. We go to the Art of Force Awakens panel, which was crazy because, like, the Force Awakens, we just saw the teaser trailer the day before, and we were like, oh, my God, there's already a panel for the art, and Doug Chang's going to be there. And Rick Carter was there. We didn't know Rick Carter from anybody when we go to this panel. And Rick Carter's up on stage in Anaheim just going deep. Saying to this audience, we, we just want to hear any kind of nugget about any kind of info about The Force Awakens. And he's like, have you ever thought about The Force? Really thought about The Force? We were sold. We were like, you know, that's the thing. We were radicalized. Rick Carter sent us right over the edge. Yeah. 
And it sounds like that was Rick Carter's job with people who worked on the movie too, that he basically gave Ryan Johnson the, the one-on-one panel and they just talked about not the script specifically, but just images and feelings. And out of that discussion is where Ryan kind of began talking about the image of Ray in this mirror cave. Which I love him discussing Ray in this mirror cave because it it really brings home kind of this scene and the scene that immediately follows the mirror cave where this moment, obviously it's all about Ray. I love him talking about Ray's hero's journey and it's not so much about becoming a hero, like becoming like a superhero or something, but it's more the growth from childhood to like adulthood. It's Ray's journey that we're seeing in this scene. You know, it's all about finding herself and there's all these versions of her going down the line, this infinite number and which one am I and where is it going to end? How am I going to end up? And is this going to define me? You know, there's all these possibilities of what I can be and I'm trying to find them, which is for me, you know, that's, that's adolescence. And um, to some extent, these movies, uh, you know, obviously, famously, Lucas kind of drew from the hero's journey and that whole uh, myth that Joseph Campbell wrote about um, in making the first Star Wars. Well, the hero's journey is not about becoming a hero. It's not about becoming, you know, um, Superman. It's, it's, if you really look at it, uh, I think it's about, you know, the transition from childhood into adulthood. It's about adolescence. It's about finding your place in the world, finding out, finding who you are. You have these powers in you and who's going to help you find the right way to use them. And that's really Ray's journey in this. And, um, I think that's something all of us can can relate to. The the hand touch in the hut with our next big force connection, where that's more Kylo's moment. He does this whole kind of each kind of character having their growth moment back to back so subtly through Kylo's moment. I love him talking about Kylo's moment with the hand touch, how it's kind of the beginning of taking Kylo from who he was in The Force Awakens with killing his father and stabbing him to us kind of understanding who Kylo Ren is or who Ben Solo is, but seeing that and learning that through Ray's eyes. The transition from of Kylo from someone who killed Han Solo and is kind of a, you know, coming into it, I kind of felt like I had to assume even though I found the character very um, intriguing, I, you know, you have to come in with, that's why, De- that's why Ray is so angry with him and just saying, screw you for basically the first few force connections is because my assumption is that was, that's how we're going to feel about him coming into this movie and how to transition him slowly from there to here um, in a way that was plausible through Ray's eyes. The notion that Ray sees this opportunity in him and maybe sees something more than that in him and to earn this connection I guess um, that was something that, uh, that, that, that that was something we spent a lot of time uh, Adam and, and, and Daisy and I kind of talking through how we were gonna how we were gonna get there well also the the idea of the hero's journey and that being about you know adolescence, the way it's used in this movie, I think, is one of the reasons that 
this movie just feels so in a way different than the other Star Wars movie, but also is the reason that so many people are can relate to it and are drawn to it is it handles that idea of the hero's journey being adolescence, I think, better than any of the other Star Wars movies because we see it through Ray's eyes and Kylo's eyes and it deals with the relationships part of adolescence of, of you know, it kind of culminating with this hand touch that it's not just like, you know, Luke's becoming a man or Ray's becoming a woman. It's kind of, it has them both, you know, Kylo's becoming a man and Ray's becoming a woman and it's dealing with both of them and that the relationship between the two of them and how much, how that is like representative adolescence. Like it's, it's way more deep and serious than, Star Wars had handled that aspect before while still feeling like a Star Wars movie and not being like a teen drama or a, or after school special about dating or something like it. It's just, it, it runs that fine line of, of being, you know, the hero's journey and being about really just blatantly about being an adolescent and growing up and, and discovering boyfriends and girlfriends and all that stuff, but doing it in a Star Wars way. It's just, I don't know. I think that's, he handles that so well. And that's one of the reasons that this movie's, I think going to just people's are always going to be drawn to this movie. And acceptance and uh, redemption and understanding and listening. I mean, that hand touch when their fingers touch, there's so many things going on. <laughs> it's one of the beautiful things that that movie you could, sh- you can show that to 20 different people and get 20 different reactions on what they think that means. Yeah. It's almost like it's like how the end of A New Hope is, you know, is this amazing thing where all the story points through the movie, you know, they all converge to the moment when Han shows up, shoots Vader and Luke blows up the Death Star, you know, and it's like the ultimate resolution of the story. This is almost like the whole movie to this point is building up to the hand touch and the hand touch is like anything and everything (laughs) <laughs> all happening at, at once at this one little point. And it's like the slowing down for Leia. It's a very different kind of thing that we've ever gotten in a Star Wars movie before for that moment. Yeah, it's not someone flying in in a spaceship and blowing someone up and, y'all clear, kid, let's blow this thing and go home. It's It's a quiet moment, and it's a moment between two people. Yeah. But it does end with an explosion because it's a Star Wars movie. That's very true. That's very true. Can drama end with an explosion? Yes, it can. And it works. And that's why it's Star Wars. So after that, there's a great moment where he's talking about working with Frank Oz. And Frank Oz giving him advice with how to film a puppet and when to cut back to Mark Hamill and You get why Frank Oz showed up as what the the guy reading the will in Knives Out. They're buddies now, the two of them. Getting to work this night with Frank and Mark. And Frank was down there all night long in the hole with the puppet performing it. Uh, I mean, it was it was such a treat. And and beyond that, I mean, Frank is also I mean, he's uh, an incredible director and I love his films and. Beyond his live action stuff, obviously he's had years of experience, um, you know, uh, working with puppets and working with them as a filmmaker. So when we got in the cutting room, I, I actually brought Frank in and showed him the scenes and the, sh- the scene. And uh, 
he was able to give some incredibly helpful tips, even just in terms of editing, how to cut around with a puppet um, and where to cut to a wide shot and where to let it hold. And he gave some really important insights into how to make this play um, and how to make it feel like uh, feel like the real feel like the real deal. Um, but God, yeah, you can't. This was just another one of those experiences on set where you look through the monitor and, and, you know, what is just a hunk of foam rubber, suddenly Frank starts operating it and it just comes to life and it's real. Um, it's really magical. And also the, the other lesson that, you know, Frank taught me was that the Mark's reaction is, is a massive part of what brings the puppet to life. Um, the actor who's with him believing this this living interacting with this living creature and, and Mark's eyes are as important as as Yoda's eyes in this scene. Um, it was it was a, a pretty special experience to get to get to do this and to get to become friends with Frank during the course of it. What they grow beyond that is the true burden of all masters. And it's, yeah, it goes back to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about of just how much, you know, people like to work with Ryan because he seems like a genuinely good guy who comes prepared with great ideas, but also knows when someone has a better idea. And he's all about collaborating with his, his cast and crew. And, you know, that's how you make the best work. And if you didn't think Ryan Johnson was a great guy already, during the Battle of Crate, when the Falcon is flying through the Crystal Planet, he talks about some of his inspirations for this scene. It'll make you fall in love with him. This whole sequence is a little bit of a homage to um, the original, original, original Star Tours ride when they go through the comet. Uh, I always love that. But the notion of doing this kind of hair-raising falcon chase through these crystal caverns. Uh, and originally, this was a little more elaborate. There was originally a whole sequence where there was a massive, like, crystal monster that almost ate them. And another one of those things where you just kind of have to pare it but down to basics. Well, in our notes, we have Crate Comet Creature Crazy because he loved the original, original... Star Tours where you fly into a comet and this whole section was kind of an homage to the flying through the crystal and it was originally going to be a longer, more elaborate scene where there was a crystal creature that was maybe going to eat the Millennium Falcon. I'm Part of me is happy that there's no like deleted scene or previous of that, but then there's part of me that really wants to see it. I, yeah, I just love... Somewhere in his head, he's just like, let's throw in a little shout out to the original, original, original Star Tours. It's just insane. Just wonderful and insane. And not even like the the least, in a way, Star Wars part of Star Tours. Like, remember the part where you go through a comet? <laughs> like, that's the part I remember the most. So now we're, we're getting close to the end of the movie. And all the stuff with Luke at the end. I love, no surprise, the way... He explains, again, this very controversial moment, this part people were, ooh, so mad about. But he explains it all just beautifully. This final little scene with Luke here, 
Um, I think Mark just gave an amazing performance and we ended up just going back over it. We probably worked this scene and tweaked it the most in the edit room just because it was so delicate in terms of the emotion of it. And again, I, I wanted this to be, um, you know, I, I wanted this to be kind of the antithesis of, of Han's death in The Force Awakens. And I mean, it was, it was such a powerful scene in The Force Awakens and such a, you know, uh, incredible moment. I just, I wanted Luke's, Luke to go out um, on his terms and in a feeling of, like Ray says at the end, peace and purpose. And a uh, combination of the music, cutting back to Ray here was something we came up with fairly late in the game. Um, again, it's just um, the reaction of her and seeing in her eyes kind of uh, her kind of standing in for us taking this hand as she always has throughout the course of this movie is a really necessary thing and it's another one of those moments going back and listening to this commentary again now that the the sequel trilogy is over and we've gotten a little more insight into kind of the ideas over the years that if you listen to what he's saying, it sounds like he went into the movie knowing that Luke was going to die and that it was up to him to figure out how Luke was going to die. Whether or not Luke was going to die wasn't something that was being discussed. It was how is Luke going to die at the end of this movie and that he really wanted to make it mean something and make it mean something in a different way than what happened with Han and that kind of all informed what happened with the the force projection like he did not want Kylo to kill him he didn't want Kylo to kill Han and now he kills Luke and it's just another example of all of these decisions that maybe seem crazy or not what you expected came from answering a question in a very rational way. Like they weren't as much as it's always the, this movie's about subverting ex- expectations and that sort of thing that it's really just about making logical decisions based on where the story was going. Like it's really not that crazy when you, th- when, when he explains it. And it's a similar thing too, with Luke being on the Island. I mean, now, like you said, like now as we get further away and you read all the stuff coming out that Luke even in the 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 weird George Lucas versions, whatever was going on with that, Luke was always going to die, and you know Ryan was just probably just kind of honoring what he had to do with kind of Luke's story, and it was up to him to fill in the blanks. But yeah, the fact that he did it, like he says in the commentary, with giving Luke peace and purpose, and that kind of being you know in John Williams suite from the last jedi movie that's the name of the suite peace and purpose like that's going through the last jedi it's you know this underlying theme and the whole thing and i don't know i just think it's wonderful i love it and that's the when i would sit in the theater back in december january february 2017 18 and just like sitting there like man i love this movie peace and purpose it's like you don't want Luke to die, but you're relieved and you like, yeah, you, you feel, I, it's like, I feel peace and purpose when I watch this movie. Like, okay, 
It was his time. It's okay. Well, it's, it's done with such class. It's done so intelligently. It's done so well. And it's, again, it's like the Leia moment where she's sitting on the radis. It's, it's a quiet moment. It's not rushed through. And characters feel it. It's not immediately just zipping to the next thing. It's, it's a moment. And he lets you sit in the moment. So much so that in the commentary, he won't even talk over that part. He's like, I got I can't talk over this part. Because <laughs> he's feeling it, too. He just wants to go along with the ride. I couldn't talk over that. Well, and then kind of going to our coda at the end with the, the broom boy, the kids at the end. And I, I love how he sets it up kind of saying like how he went back and forth with, should this be in the movie? Should it not? But in the end, he just felt that this little kind of epilogue with the children just summed up Star Wars so well. And he had to leave it in there. And I'm so glad he did. And I remember, you know, after the movie came out, everyone being like, is the next, is Broom Boy going to be in the next movie? And it's like, people just didn't get this ending scene. And I think people, a lot of people still don't, but just listen to the commentary. It's on Disney plus. And it, this, it's just so wonderful. And then our coda, which um, always meant so much to me. And it, it was, it was something that, you could very easily lop this off and end with the falcon going off, and, and then that would have been a good ending. Um, this felt really important to me for a lot of reasons. This, this uh, you know, Luke, during the course of this film, has basically made the decision to um, take on the mantle of being Luke Skywalker and being kind of like a symbol of of hope. And so the little to end it with the notion of Luke hasn't just saved this group of 20 resistance fighters. He has done what he said, what we want him to do from the crawl. He wanted to reignite the hope in the galaxy. And that expressed through these kids who are playing with a Luke Skywalker action figure and looking up at the stars and thinking, I can go up there and join the good fight. That's what these movies, these movies are hopefully all about. When it really is for the movie ending with Luke dying, it if without the epilogue, the epilogue is the happy ending, and you're seeing that Luke's sacrifice succeeded, and his the legend of Luke Skywalker has spread throughout the galaxy and inspired the people who need to be inspired. And it's not about the you know resistance going around and rescuing all the all the slave children throughout the galaxy. It's really about the slave children being inspired to win their own freedom and they don't have to wait to be rescued, that they can be inspired by Luke Skywalker, who wasn't afraid to stand up to the first order. And yeah, it's such a quick little moment that I just, yeah, I can't imagine that movie without that, that, and I, and it's funny watching the movie as many times as I've seen it. There's a part of me that forgets about the epilogue until it happens. And then I'm always like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so looking back on the commentary and The Last Jedi, I mean, it's such an important movie for us and for for so many fans. And I don't know, I hope Ryan Johnson one day comes back to make at least another Star Wars something. But if, if he doesn't, I mean, if he just keeps on making... Knives Out movies or whatever the heck else he wants to make and he never comes back to the galaxy far, far away. I mean, at least we got this. Yeah, we have another favorite Star Wars movie for the rest of our lives. So 
we're lucky enough to have one. Whether or not we get more from him, it's just, yeah, it's a wee bonus at this point. the movie that's the last jedi guys thank you so much for listening um and uh i'm gonna shut up over the credits so you can listen to john's amazing outro music and read all of the names of all the incredible people who worked on this and uh um this i've had the time of my life making this movie and uh very grateful to have gotten to do it uh and grateful to, to all you guys and all the star wars fans out there Love you guys. Take care. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. You know the drill, everybody. Uh, Apple Podcast Reviews. If you listen on something Apple when you're done listening, go over there, write a little something nice about Blast Points. Tell us why you like the show. Tell us how it makes you feel inside your heart. And we will read your review on an upcoming episode. And it helps the show in mysterious, strange ways. And after that, check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, which is the best place to find back episodes because you can use the handy search feature to find episodes that you are interested that you may have missed. And after that, make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you are a member of the Blast Points Super Live Super Star Wars Chill Group. It is the best place on Facebook. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we've got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon, where every weekend we have got our Mandalorian Season 2 review episodes. Just last weekend, we had a review episode for The Siege. Still recovering from that one. <laughs> what was going on? We don't even, we don't, we, we still don't know what was happening. Yeah, there's, there's some serious questions that we talked about in that episode. But we have got to give a shout-out to all the new members of the Blast Points Army. And so we're giving a big thank you to Trevor, Dan, Dan, Kevin, Andy, Justin, Mark, Kelly, That's It, Chris, Jackson, Trenton, Shannon, Paco. This is my favorite one. Poo-poo, pee-pee, dad. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ewan, Tiago, Eric, Joshua, David, and Justin. So thank you all so much. Uh, hope you're enjoying all the bonus stuff over there on the, the Blast Points Army. Well, and that about wraps up episode number 245 here. Soggy Year, The Last Jedi. I love that movie. I'm not afraid to say it. 
You may get tired of us talking about Last Jedi, but we'll never get tired of talking about Last Jedi. Next week, no new episode. We will be back on December 8th. Because for us here in the United States, it's Thanksgiving. And we're taking uh, the week off. But we will have a Mandalorian episode of what? The weekend after Thanksgiving over on the Patreon. So, But we'll be resting up, so we'll be back better than ever in December. So, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everybody. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. Conclusion, I just wanted to be on the city record that uh, The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars movie. Thank you. I, I agree. Thanks, Kyle. May the Force be with all of you.